Good morning. So today we are continuing on into the second week of Advent, the second week of our Advent series that we've entitled uh, Prepare Him Room. And in this work of Advent, uh, we're going to stay in the book of Isaiah today, as we were last week. And so I want to bring the scripture passage up. It's from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And I invite us all just to listen and meditate and soak in the word of the Lord today. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been at Covenant for, uh, at all uh, in recent years, uh, you will not be surprised to know that one of the things that I believe in and that we have uh, talked about and we've certainly seen growing uh, in pretty dramatic ways here has been the participation in small group ministry. Now, it's not that a small group is like the only way that you can grow spiritually, but it's a wonderful, wonderful way of figuring out what all of us need, which is how we go from being a part of a crowd to being a part of a community. How do we have people that we are walking with? But as much as I love the idea and as much as we've tried to talk about that uh, through the years, you might be surprised to know that the first time I ever heard about the idea of a small group, I totally thought it was one of the weirdest things I'd ever heard of in my life. And I did not sign up or want to get involved at all. I was a seminary student at the time and uh, was, was learning more about faith and studying for ministry. And a, a friend of mine who was a little bit older than me and, and in his marriage they were uh, at a little bit of a different stage. They had had children at this point. Um, was talking about how their marriage had um, uh, been really impacted by becoming a part of a small group ministry of their church. And I said, well, what is it like? What is it? Well, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Uh, and he goes, well, we get together uh, on a regular basis and uh, we really learn how what's going on in each other's lives and we try to tell the truth and we try to hear the truth and we pray for each other. And I was like, that sounds weir weird uh, and sort of pathetic that you guys do that because we didn't have kids at the time, which meant we were just in love and both working and life was simple and, and it was great. And I was like, but hey, you know, if, if that's what you need, that's, that's fine. You go do that. Uh, and uh, I said, but, but, but like, why? Why would you give all this time to it? Like, why is that something as a couple or as an individual that someone would choose to do? 
uh, to, to kind of get together. I said, is there like a, is there a book study? Is this like a book club? And he's like, no, there's no book. And I was like, is there a curriculum? You can tell I, this is like the Presbyterian in me coming out. It's like, is there a curriculum that a, that a committee's approved of? And like, how does that work? He's like, no, there's no curriculum. I remember him saying, he goes, our lives are the curriculum. He's like, if we tell the truth of what's going on and we gather together, there's enough there, both exciting and hard, and we can pray for each other that, that, that you don't need a book outside of the scriptures to really guide you. And I was like, all right. Uh, I said, I still don't really get it. So, um, w- like, what made you decide to do this? And he said, what happened for them and why they decided to join a small group was he said that what I realized, what my wife and I realized is we have kids and as things were getting busier and busier at work and other stuff, he said what we realized is we were becoming really efficient co-workers together. Um, he said it felt like we were more co-workers than anything else because life was all about a lot of, it was like we were running a small business out of our house. And so it was like, you know, are you taking care of this and I've got the bills and you're taking care of the planning and you've got the calendar and you're driving over here, but I'm arranging the Thanksgiving plans and I'll work on the travel stuff, but your mother drives me nuts. And so I'm going to chug on my right ear twice. And that means I get to leave the room for a little while. And then we have that discussion and then we got to work out who's volunteering with the PTA and the school event. But then there's a thing going on at church and on the committee there. And I got to get involved in that. And we're running and we're making sure that all these things are happening. And he said it was good and we were efficient and we were doing it well, but it felt like our marriage was changing in the middle of it. And it felt like we were co-workers in a small business running out of our house. And he said, and what I figured out was is that if we wanted that to change, that there was some limited options in front of us. I was like, okay, well, what, what were the options? Like, what were you looking at? He said, well, option number one, when you realize that you're kind of like married to a coworker, and you feel like you're running a small business efficiently out of, our, out of your house. He said, num- rule, uh, option number one is we just ignore it and hope it goes away, away. And because I'm a person of great wisdom, I was like, that doesn't sound like a very good option. He's like, you know, because it's like once they start kindergarten or once they go to high school or once they go to college, something will magically change and it'll all get better. He was like, well, yeah, that's true. That's not a very good option. So we didn't choose that one. He said, another option is that we had to decide if we wanted to move towards the pain or not. I was like, that doesn't sound good. What does that mean? He goes, well, that means is that we had to get together and we had to start saying, well, what are the root causes of some of this and what's going on and what are the patterns that we have and how do we start naming it and moving towards it together and doing so with some other people and praying about it together? And in my wisdom, I was like, that's a terrible option too. Like, what, what is the, like, what's, so what were the other options? He goes, there are no other options. I was like, What? He goes, no, those are the two options. You either get used to it, and, and it just sort of suffocates uh, everything out of it as you become more and more efficient, or you move towards the pain. And I was like, uh, there's got to be a third option. Like, there has to be another option. He goes, there's not. Now, to be fair, I did not go join a small group that day. There was nothing in that that I was like, I'm signing up for that. But it stayed with me. And this idea of having to move towards the pain believing that if we move towards the pain, even if it gets harder for a moment, God can create something new out of that in faith, has certainly stayed with me. There's a poem that I want to bring up here by J.M. Storm. It's a, it's a little piece of a, of a poem he wrote that gets at some of this, gets at the idea of it. Storm writes, because sometimes that's what has to be done. You have to lay down with it, the hurt, or the heartache, or even the hate, whatever is inside. Sometimes you have to get close to it, taste it, and understand it so you can define it before it defines you. So that you can define it before it defines you. 
It's the same kind of concept of moving towards the pain, believing that something new can emerge when we do that. And that's the whole concept of our faith when you stop and think about it. That's what we celebrate and we get ready for at Christmas time. It's the miracle of the incarnation. And that incarnation is the idea that God loves this world enough as incomplete and selfish and broken and as much brokenness that would come at God. God loves this world enough to move towards it and the pain and the loss and the heartache that's in it rather than staying up in heaven going, it must be rough down there, right? And loving us enough to come into the world to teach us what love and what life really can look like rather than just giving us over to I'm spiritual but not religious, which means I'm just believing in whatever the sentiments of my own heart already are. God loves us enough to give us something more than that. And he moved towards it. We see this in the cross. We see that in the cross, this is the ultimate moment where what God has moved towards comes at him in pain and comes at him in betrayal and comes at him in death. But God doesn't run from that. But God indeed moves towards that pain and in moving towards it, something new emerges. That's what we believe about our own life. One of the reasons that we we seek to confess our sins is because we believe that if we move towards it and name it, that we can actually be transformed by it. That the more and more we just sit there and go, no, 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 I'm just going to be good and I'm just going to try to act nice and sorry about that, that that's not how we change. But what we change is by moving towards the hurt that we've done, towards the ugliness that even lies within us. And as we move towards it, God can do something with it. We do that in ministries of this church all the time. Just one example, and there's tons of examples of this that, that maybe some of you have been a part of, is walking the mourner's path. Walking the mourner's path is a, a, something we offer a number of times a year, when, uh, and we allow it for people who have experienced deep loss in their personal life, which all of us have and all of us will walk through. Pain that in grief that is so real you're not certain how to get out of bed sometimes in the morning. And one of the things we do as people is we try to muscle our way through it. We try to just keep going to work and keep pushing through and keep acting like everything's going to be okay. But the walking the mourner's path is one example of saying, actually, if you move, turn and move towards it, as scary as that is, as painful as that might be to move towards the loss and naming it and moving towards it, God does something in it. God brings something out of that. God brings healing and change and transformation. But you've got to be willing to move towards the hurt and towards the pain and towards what's difficult. The reason we're talking about this is because we see these examples not just in the life of the church, but outside of that. Patrick Lencioni writes about this in companies and in organizations. He says that one of the most common dysfunctions of any organization is a lack of conflict because people avoid the hard conversations. People know that there's a problem. People know that we're not maximizing thing in the, things in the office place, that the bottom line's not what it could be, but that we don't talk about it and move away from those hard conversations. And Lencioni says, even though that, that makes us feel like everything might be okay, it's like, hey, we never have any hard times around here. He says what that means is, is that there's a lack of trust in the, co- in the company or in the organization or in the family, and that what's happening is you're not maximizing what you should do because if there's trust, you can have conflict in redemptive ways. He says, one of the most common signs of dysfunction in a company is a lack of conflict because it means that no one's moving towards the hard place, towards the crucial conversation. You move towards the pain, believing something new can emerge. The reason that we're talking about this and the reason we want to talk about this idea of moving towards the pain today is because in Isaiah, when he writes these nine verses about peace, and this is the text assigned by the church for the candle we lit today, the candle of peace, 
Really, it was broken into two sections, two parts, these nine verses. We're going to bring one slide up on the screen of the second part. And the second part, when we read it, is verses six through nine. And that was the part when we were reading it where you were like, thank you. Thank you for getting to that, right? We were wondering, like the first five verses, there's like judgment and evil and all this other stuff. We're lighting the candle of peace. It's Christmas. We want happy Jesus here. We want holiday Jesus. Holiday Jesus doesn't do the anger and the evil and the killing and the judging. Holiday Jesus is happy Jesus. This is, we wanted this to be the kind of place at this time of the year we can bring family and friends. We don't want to like talk about the first five verses and like look at each other going, I'm sorry, I don't know why he's talking about this. We got to this part and it's like, that's what we want. The wolf and the lamb, they're going to lie down together. The, the, the cow and the bear, they're going to graze together. They will not harm one another on my holy mountain and a little child shall lead them. We know these verses and, and we love it. We've got the figurines of the lion and the lamb and it makes me feel all good and it's on the Christmas card and it's great. That's what the peace part is. Why are you reading verses one through five? The reason that we have to keep this up here is that yes, this is a promise of the peace that is coming. But when we hear about this peace, we have to understand that this is a peace that has not yet been realized in this world. And it's not through a lack of effort, right? It's not because we don't have enough songs about world peace. There have been songs written about it. There have been poems written about it. There have been speeches given on it. There have been marches that have been done in terms of world peace in every country and in every continent and in every language around the world. And it's been taking place for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. And it is no more of a reality today than when Isaiah wrote these words. Because what we want is we want the happy Jesus that just shows up in the lion and the lamb. Like we just, let's just stick with that. But Isaiah is saying, if you want to understand this, you have to get close enough to the pain to understand why it doesn't exist right now. You have to move towards the hurt. And to move towards the hurt and to understand that, you have to journey through verses one through five. This is the part we tend to avoid, but it's how we get to peace. Isaiah says that this one that he writes about, the child that will lead them, is a person from Jesse's lineage. Now, Jesse is King David's father. And both in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke, the writers go to great pains to show you that Jesus is part of the lineage of King David, that he fulfills this prophecy. He is from Jesse's lineage, who will what? Number one, shall delight in the fear of the Lord. That's not the Jesus we want in December 8th. We want happy Jesus. Eight pound, six pound baby Jesus. (laughs) She'll judge the earth with equity for the meek shall strike the earth and kill the wicked. You see, what Isaiah is saying that Jesus is going to do here is he is going to move towards the hurt, move towards the pain. And the pain, as Isaiah and other writers write about in the Bible, is the reason we don't have peace is not because there hadn't been enough songs written about it. The reason we don't have peace is because there are basic inequalities in this world that make it impossible to realize. Levels of poverty, systems of violence, systems of injustice, systems of racism, systems of bigotry. There is grief 
There is pain. There is loneliness. There are people in this room today who don't feel like every day is just getting a little more Christmassy. They are walking in here trying to crawl to the finish line of 2019 because of the hurt and difficulty in life. And what Isaiah says is that this one who is promising to come, the Prince of Peace, is going to begin by moving towards the hurt and seeking to bring equality. To prepare him room, the work of Advent is not just getting Christmassy for baby Jesus. The work of Advent and preparing him room is joining Jesus in the work that he is doing to build the world as the kingdom describes. Where all are one and stand together as equal brothers and sisters in the name of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for you and I today if we want peace to understand that that means some hard work today of moving towards the hard places in our neighborhoods and in our city and our families and our nation and our world? Well, there's all kinds of ways. One of the things I'm excited about is that we've been seeking to build in terms of our life here at Covenant more and more on-ramps into the places of hurt. We don't do mission here and increase it and, and, and emphasize it more and more because we're just really, really nice people doing charity. We're trying to lift up the broken places in society out of a sense of justice and a desire for peace. That's a totally different thing than just we just want to help some people out. It's the motivation behind it of what we do. And we're going to keep building that in 2020 of how we do it. But today, what I'd like to leave you with is a suggestion of what this can look like in your and my life today that comes in a kind of Christmas package. It comes from one of the favorite Christmas stories that exists. It's a book that was written by Charles Dickens. It's been made into movies. It's at the Zach Theater right now. We can have all kinds of theological discussions of what's the best and our favorite rendition of A Christmas Carol. It might be the Bill Murray version. could be the Patrick Stewart version. could be the George C. Scott version. could be the Jim Carrey version. could be the Zach Theater version. Who knows what your favorite one is? We can get and dive into all of that. But A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, which many of us uh, get to read or watch at this time of year, has created some of the best, most literary, uh, famous literary characters in history. Jacob Marley, Bob Cratchit, Tiny Tim, Ebenezer Scrooge. But the person that I would like us to pay attention to from Dickens' work is not one of those major characters who I think might give us a sense of what this work of moving towards the pain looks like. But if you watch it this year, or read A Christmas Carol this year, I'd like you to pay attention to a smaller character who doesn't even have a last name in the text. The individual I'm talking about is named Fred. Anybody know Fred from A Christmas Carol? Fred is the only living relative of Ebenezer Scrooge. Fred is Ebenezer's late sister's only child. Fred's mother, Ebenezer Scrooge's sister, died in childbirth. As Fred came into this world, Fred is an orphan. Ebenezer Scrooge, the one that no one wants to be around, his uncle. But the action begins each and every year with Fred showing up on Christmas Eve at Ebenezer Scrooge's money-changing house 
to do what Fred has done every year on Christmas Eve, which is to endure his uncle's scorn and mocking and ridicule to invite him to Christmas dinner the next day. Whenever you see Ebenezer Scrooge in the movies and the plays, everyone runs away from him. The kids run away from him screaming. All the other people run away from him screaming because they see a twisted, angry, mean man. Fred sees something different. He sees his uncle who is spiritually impoverished going into this season of the year. And Fred is the one person who moves towards the one that, the thing that everyone else avoids. Constantly reaching out. Constantly saying, you are wanted, you are remembered, you are desired in this place. What would it mean if in seeking to move towards the hurt and believing that God could do something with it, you and I this week united under the ministry of Fred? What if that helped us to understand what it looks like? Because when we talk about encouraging one another to follow Jesus where we live, work, and play, there are people in each of those places who are limping to the finish line this year, and most of us are uncomfortable around it, and we talk to each other around it, but we don't know what to do about it. What would it mean if the thousands of people in the covenant orbit of all different ages and stages of life this week looked where they live, work, and played and seeked to reach out, to invite to coffee, to invite to lunch, to send a letter, to reach out in some kind of way, even if you're not certain what you can fix about the hurting or the loss or the injustice or the poverty in that place, and what if nothing else this week, like Fred, you looked and reached out to this person to say you are remembered, you are noticed, you are important, you have value. I don't get to say this very often in the life of a church, especially a Presbyterian church, but you do not even need a committee to help you figure this out. You don't need a committee's approval for what to do. It's about leaving this place, doing the work that Jesus embodies and calls you and I to do. So this day, may we seek to work for peace where we live, work, and play by doing what each and every one of us can do, which is to move towards the places of hurt and pain with love, with open arms, with invitation, trusting that as we go there, uncertain what we can even do, that we do not go by ourselves. And you know what was gonna happen? There will be peace that will be realized, not just for the people out there that we're reaching out to, but in this crazy, busy, hectic time of the year, it might just be the only way that we find peace here. This is what it looks like to do the work of Advent, of preparing him room. May we step forward this week and always. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would give us a heart to reach out, to move beyond ourselves and our own circumstances, to move beyond our own places, which are very real of hurt, but to see the hurt in the places around us and the society around us and that in big ways and in small ways we would be bridge builders. We would be people who reach out. We would be people who let someone else knows that they matter. 
And we pray that you would do your great work in these efforts and that as we believe in our faith, as we move towards pain, you will swallow that pain up and make something new. So may we step out in faith, not of what we can accomplish, but what you can accomplish if we just make ourselves available. We pray for your leading and your guiding, even in this busy time of year, to follow in your ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.